This has been an interesting week for uh, the fellowship. 
As uh, probably by now most of you know, and or at least to one degree or another, we were called upon this week by the American Red Cross to see if we would open our facilities to provide shelter to the evacuees from the hurricane. There's a large church in our community who uh, God had laid it on their hearts to try to help those people who still were remaining in shelters coming up on three weeks after the hurricane. And they were uh, had a very ambitious plan to pay the way for up to 3,000 of those evacuees to come to Southern California with the promise not only that the church would provide for their transportation to get here, but would also place them in the homes of various families in the community where they would be guests, house guests, for up to a year until they were able to get back on their feet, find employment and housing of their own, and so forth. That was the plan, and the American Red Cross was going to participate alongside of this by asking uh, five churches in this area here to serve as temporary shelters for up to a week so that the evacuees, as they were coming in, would have a place to go. They would go through a welcome center and be processed and then come in and stay for up to a week in these various church shelters until they could be placed with these host families. So a foothill was asked, and we were asked on Monday, I believe it was, of whether we would participate. And uh, throughout the day Monday, the elders, uh, through email, were, we were able to work that through and, and say, yes, indeed, we would like to serve people in our community in that fashion. And so beginning uh, in earnest Tuesday morning, I think the wheels began to really crank. And uh, we turned this over to the deacons who are in charge of our Mercy Ministries And those men really rose to the task. You should be most proud of the deacons of this fellowship. They grabbed a hold of the ball and they began to run with it. We had a lengthy meeting Tuesday evening with the American Red Cross, along with hundreds of other uh, believers from this this, uh, Inland Valley area here and church representatives. And we were there till well into the evening and uh, came away Tuesday night about 10.30, I guess it was, knowing uh, that we had to move quickly because we could be getting people as early as Saturday morning. And so then communication went out to you here in the body, and uh, it wasn't perfect. And to that, I I apologize. We've learned a few things along the way about how to communicate, and uh, we're we're going to make some improvements so that we can communicate quicker and more effectively uh, with you. But we did communicate uh, to you uh, by email and by telephone, and the response was absolutely overwhelming. Hundreds of you said, yes, I will do whatever it takes. The Red Cross had asked us to provide up to 300 volunteers round the clock to man the shelters, and, um, and people were responding. And so there was a tremendous level of activity going on here this week, meetings and planning well into the evenings to try to get ready to receive the influx of evacuees. And then the president gave a speech on Thursday evening, which was just the public face of a decision that had been made sometime prior to that, and that is that the United States government was going to step in in a a massive way. All along, we knew that the people who would come here after having been in a shelter for three weeks were going to be people who really had no other options. To relocate halfway across the United States to one of the most expensive Uh, places to live in the country, coming from one of the areas in the country that is far more inexpensive to live, is just not good economics. 
So for people to come this far, we knew that they must be quite desperate. And the government did step in and they notified the Red Cross that there was going to be a massive amount of temporary housing brought into that area. The floodwaters were receding at a far more rapid rate than, than the experts had initially predicted and so that they would be getting back into their communities quicker. And they, they went to the, to the evacuees and they said, would you like to stay another week or 10 days here in Houston in the Astrodome or do you want to go to Southern California and stay in a shelter there? And the decision's pretty easy, right? And they said, we'll, we'll stay in Houston, thank you, and get back into our communities as quickly as we can. And so the whole operation, which had been revved up to a fevered pitch, was stood down on Thursday evening. And, uh, you know, I guess I just want to say as, to a congregation, to you as, a, as the body here, how much I appreciate your outpouring of love and, and graciousness, willing to rearrange your lives on a moment's notice, people volunteering to work the graveyard shift midnight to 6 a.m., and stay awake and manning the shelter. I mean, it just really did my heart good. You should be most proud of your deacons. This was their first major test, and they, uh, they really stepped up. So God is at work here. I, I rejoice. I've uh, got to say I was disappointed only because, um, probably because the adrenaline was um, draining out of me, and that led to disappointment. Uh, certainly I rejoice that people don't have to come sleep in our gym on a cot. That is not a great deal as much as we wanted to be hospitable to them. So I rejoice that they can remain in their communities, and I pray and hope to God that they get quickly back into those uh, places where they are from, can rebuild their communities and, and return their life to normal. Keep praying for the churches uh, in that area across the whole Gulf Coast region. They are ministering frontline to people, and uh, God is doing some amazing things. And the gospel, I believe, is beautified by the mercy ministries of God's people. And so I expect a great gospel harvest to come out of such a tragedy as a hurricane and the devastation that it brought. We are uh, going to finish this morning the, uh, the sidetrack, the little, um, little detour we did from the Gospel of John to deal with core values. We've been hammering away now for the last five weeks. This is the sixth and final session, and I wanted to do this because I wanted to draw it all together. Because of vacations and various things, some of you have missed one or more of the, of the previous five weeks. I don't have time to go through it all. I, I highly recommend to you that you get the uh, tapes or the CDs of it and listen because it will be in far more detail then. But what I want to do this morning is I want to look at all five together because they are highly interrelated. One presupposes the next. And one way I want to do that is I want to look at our five core values in the life of the Apostle Paul is if these are really from God, if these are God's values, then we should be able to see them in God's man. Would you agree? And so we are going to track through the life of the Apostle Paul. It's necessarily going to be quick. There's not a lot of heavy exegesis going on here. What we're going to do is, is quickly move through a lot of Scripture passages, and I'm just going to be illustrating from Scripture how the Apostle Paul believed and lived out the same core values that we believe in by God's grace, we uh, are and will do even to a greater extent living them out in our own lives. So let me just give you some background to get your, get your heads in the ballgame here with regard to the Apostle Paul. He is a most amazing man, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, that's on the southeastern uh, coast of Turkey near modern-day Syria. Okay, so he was from that part of the world. 
He was born a Roman citizen, he tells us. His father was a citizen. Paul was born a citizen. Being a citizen of Rome granted you certain unalienable rights that were most useful in the ancient world, such as the right to a fair public trial, such as the right to being exempt from crucifixion, and such as the right of appeal. That did not exist for all um, people in the Roman Empire, only for those who were citizens. And the Apostle Paul was a citizen, born a citizen, and many times used his citizenship rights to uh, leverage the gospel and enable him to move out very widely with it. The Apostle came from an impeccable Jewish pedigree, and I ask you to open your Bibles now to Philippians 3, and we will just begin to trace some things here together. Of course, he's Saul first, Paul later. Most think that Paul was just his Roman name. Saul was his Jewish name, and he took his Roman name later. He comes from, as he gives it to us himself here, beginning in verse 5, an impeccable Jewish pedigree. He was a Jew among Jews. Philippians 3, verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. The Apostle Paul was what every Jewish man would look up to in his day. That would be the kind of man you would want to emulate as the Apostle Paul. Go back to you, the left here to Galatians 1 where he'll add a little bit more to his pedigree here for us. Verses 13 and 14. He writes to the Galatian church, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He was an up-and-comer. If he were in the business world, he would be a fast-tracker. Someone in that senior management would identify and say, this is a guy that we're going to put money and investment mentoring into because he's going to be a CEO someday. Okay, That's a business context. What the Apostle Paul says is, in the business of Judaism, I was doing very well. Okay, As to all the measures of Judaism, I was quite proficient. But here, as we read and read over in Philippians, he had an insatiable desire to destroy the church. He was zealous, extremely zealous, wanting to stamp out this fledgling movement, the way, if you will. Why? Why did the Apostle Paul turn such promise, such intellect, such zeal to the destruction of this small, what he considered to be, aberrant, um, schismatic cult out of Judaism. Why? Well, the answer lies in the very message of this group itself, a message that was abhorrent to this Jewish man, a message that the Messiah of God had been crucified. The notion that God's anointed one, the one on whom the Spirit of God rests, Isaiah 11.1, could possibly have been crucified was so abhorrent to the mind of this man that that it that it became blasphemous to even consider it. 
He was singularly unimpressed with the, the various evidences that this Jewish carpenter could possibly have been Messiah. But way beyond that, the very fact that he had hung on a cross sealed the deal. He could not possibly be the one, and he was not interested in some foolish notion that he had perhaps risen from the dead. That, even if he had, would not have, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, overturned the fact that he was crucified. The Bible is very clear. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Just mark it down if you like. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. They are under the curse of God, and so it would be impossible for the Messiah of God to hang under the curse of God. Even later in life, when the apostle came to understand that Jesus indeed was the Messiah, he never forgot the, the abhorrence of the fact that it was a crucified Messiah. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This message was absolutely abhorrent to a Jewish man. And Paul understood that. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, Paul says, We preach Christ, that is Messiah, crucified. We preach Messiah crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Gentiles, foolishness. Paul never got over the fact that it was indeed the most contradictory message that could possibly be given to the world that the Messiah of God was a cursed man hung on a cross. And so Paul had to reconcile this in his mind theologically and not only for him but indeed for all people for all time. And he does just that in Galatians 3. Take a quick look there. Galatians 3.13 Where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul reconciled it in his theology that it is the curse of those who break the law and that it was Christ on that cross who took their curse for them. That his perfect righteousness would be imputed to us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and all of our wickedness and guilt imputed to him and then hung there on that cross and judged by God. Paul was out to destroy this new faith because they were blasphemers in his mind. Go to Acts 9. They deserved to be destroyed. And as a zealous young man, he was out to do it. Acts 9, beginning verse 1, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. 
And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. The Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who call on this name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. What an amazing conversion. What an incredible transformation. From one whose sole purpose and intention in life was to stamp it out to the one who would become its chief spokesman, its greatest theologian, its most successful church planter. Jesus Christ got a hold of Paul on the road to Damascus and never turned him loose. And Paul was devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Core value number one. When Christ got a hold of Paul, Paul was devoted to Jesus Christ in a devotion that never, ever went away. Just listen For example, in Galatians 1.10, he says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant. And Christ, he's saying to the church of Galatia, Listen, I don't care what people think of me anymore. It's what God thinks of me. He writes in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Gain. His devotion was so intense. Go again, Philippians 3. Let's read one together. Philippians 3, verse 8. In his own words, articulating his devotion to Jesus Christ, verse 8, he says, more than that. He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The Apostle Paul says, I count everything scubalon." Dung, rubbish, worthless. I take everything my life was, all of my advantages that I was born with, and I put them on one side of the scale. 
I put Christ on the other, and this is all garbage. I am devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Devoted to Christ. And because Paul was devoted to Christ, he was determined to obey Christ. Second core value, determined to obey. For us, we articulated the Bible, I will just say this morning, determined to obey the Word of God. The Apostle Paul was determined to obey the Word of God. We won't look again. I just read it to you, Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. Where Jesus says to Ananias, I, you know, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And I will tell him where he must go. He must go to Gentiles and kings and present my word to him. So how did he do? Well, 1 Corinthians 2, let's take a look. Was this man who was devoted to Jesus Christ, was he determined Was he determined to obey the Word of God? 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was determined that I would tell you nothing except about the Messiah who hung on a cross, that which is abhorrent to the natural mind. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Oh, I could have come in many different ways. I could have fine-tuned my message for your sophisticated ears to be able to hear. I could have downplayed a little bit, at least initially, the offensiveness of the cross and perhaps come at it in a different fashion. But I was determined to know nothing among you but Messiah and Him crucified. And that is what occupied me in my preaching. I was determined to obey the word of God that had been given to me that said, go to the Gentiles and tell them about a crucified Messiah. Go back to Acts chapter 24. Well, maybe that was easy to do there in Corinth because, you know, he could always get out of town, right? If the going got too tough, he could take off in the middle of the night. Maybe he was determined to obey the Word of God or determined to obey, as we would articulate it, the Bible, up to a point. Was he willing to go all the way with it? Acts chapter 24, verses 24 through 27. Now he is under arrest. He is imprisoned. He is under the confinement of the Roman authorities. And he has been called to speak to Felix and Drusilla. He's been called to speak to those in authority over him. Those that have the ability to snuff out his life. Now will he tailor the message. Now will he shave it back a little. Now will he give him a soft approach. And maybe we'll get around to the, to the stumbling block of the cross later. Listen to how he preaches. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess. 
and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, that is a tremendous three-point sermon, by the way, Felix became frightened. And he said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Can you imagine if you had an opportunity to speak before a high governmental official? You've got one opportunity to speak. Would you choose righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come? Verse 26, at the same time, too, Felix, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porteus Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Paul, just give me a little bribe. That'll get you out. He won't do that either. He is determined to obey the word of God. Now, after he's been there a while, maybe, maybe it changes then when after the pressure's been on a little bit longer. huh? What do you think about that? How about Acts 26? Let's see how Paul responds to that. Acts 26, verse 24, a second opportunity, a second chance to sort of come at it with a softer approach. And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. That, by the way, is a little insight into how his message was being received, right? You know, as a communicator, you look out at your audience and you can try to judge how people are receiving. Some of you have furrowed brows right now. Others of you, all I see is your eyelids. Others of you are looking very intently at me. Okay, but no one so far has yelled out to me that you are mad. You may be thinking it, but you haven't said it. But that's how they respond to Paul. They say, Paul, your great learning is driving you crazy. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I utter words of sober truth, for the king knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that whether in short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Same message. Higher government official this time, King Agrippa. Great-grandson of Herod the Great. King Agrippa, as it's called here. And Paul doesn't tailor the message. He doesn't soft-pedal the message. He doesn't shave off the hard edges. He just lets him have it. How about the end of his life? Or at least the end of the recorded part here, Acts 28. Now he's in Rome. He's imprisoned here in Rome waiting for on his appeal before Caesar. And the leaders of, of the, the Jewish synagogues of Rome come to him. And they want to find out what it is this guy's been talking about. We've been hearing about him all over the place. that he is in, He's a real pesk, as one of them said. And so how does Paul address them? This is his own countrymen. 
Maybe here he could, he could soften the message a little. Maybe, maybe here he could make it a little more palatable for Jewish ears. I mean, after all, he says in Romans 10 that it's my heart's desire and longing for their salvation. Verse 23, And when they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. That's the crucified Galilean. From both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. This is his closer on his sermon here. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I should heal them. Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. Translated? You've had your opportunity. You had your opportunity. But rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, you are so far from me. You may give me lip service, but you have no interest in me. The message will go to the Gentiles and they will respond. How do you think the leaders of the synagogues of Rome reacted to that kind of a statement? You can be pretty assured that they were not too thrilled. But it didn't matter to Paul. Because Paul was determined to obey the word of God wherever it took him and whatever the price he had to pay to do it. No compromising. No compromising. And because of that determination that he had, which was driven from his absolute devotion to to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul was a man of prayer. We only pray and we only pray diligently when we know we need God. People who don't need God don't pray. It is people who know they need God are the ones who pray. The Apostle Paul was never unconscious of the fact that he needed God and he needed Him powerfully in order to fulfill that which had been given to him. Go with me back to Acts 9. Let me just take you through this book quickly here and demonstrate to you the prayer life of the Apostle Paul. It was a way of life for him. He was devoted to prayer, and that is our third core value, that we are devoted to prayer. But, beloved, it's easy to say we're devoted to prayer. It's another thing to be devoted to prayer. And we will only be devoted to prayer when our determination to obey the Bible is so uncompromising that it places us in positions where we must pray. Acts 9, verse 11. This is, again, I just read this, but this is where Ananias is is to go to to the house where Paul's staying. And notice it says at the bottom, he is praying. He is praying. The apostle Paul is in prayer. Even at that point. Chapter 16, verse 25. How about if you're in prison and you've been beaten with rods and your feet are in the stocks and they're spread at such an 
impossibly wide angle that the agony is shooting up the insides of your legs. The groin muscles are being torn. How do you, what do you do then? Do you moan? Maybe you do. But we know for sure, verse 25, that about midnight, Paul and Silas were what? Praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I bet they were. The standard response of an unbeliever in that kind of agony is to blaspheme God, to curse his persecutors. The Apostle Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns of praise. Acts 21, verse 5. Here he's, he's having a reunion with some believers of churches that he's planted and he's getting ready to leave now. Verse 5, And when it came about that our days there had ended, we departed and started on our journey. And while they all with wives and children escorted us until we were out of the city and after kneeling down on the beach and what? Praying. We said farewell to one another. Why are they praying? Because they come to understand that the task that they're about, where he's going and where they're staying, requires God to intervene on their behalf. They are totally dependent on him. Therefore, they are totally devoted to him in prayer. Chapter 22, verse 17. Here the Apostle Paul is recounting his conversion. And then his first trip back to Jerusalem, there in the temple, before he gets run out of town, verse 17, and it came about and I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. I'm just trying to, to demonstrate to you that prayer, devotion to prayer, was every part of this man's life. Wherever he was, whatever he was doing, he was involved in praying. Therefore, he could say in Thess- to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Because he prayed without ceasing. Second Corinthians Chapter 13. The church that was his biggest trial was the church at Corinth. And notice his heart towards them. Verse 9, chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 9. We rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. Paul's prayer life for this church was that they would be made complete in Christ, that they would grow up in Jesus Christ. And I'm sure every time he thought of this church and the agony that they were causing him, his response to them was prayer. Paul was committed to prayer. Keep going to the right. Ephesians 6. Verse 18 and 19. Paul wanted others to pray for him too. He was so committed and devoted to prayer. It wasn't just his own personal prayer life. It was his appeal to others to pray for him. And so he writes to the church at, at Ephesus with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Paul would not exhort them to do that which he himself would not do. The very fact that he is exhorting them to pray at all times 
means that he himself prayed at all times. This man was devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. And this devotion to prayer is what energized him. This is what emboldened him to do daring ministry. Fourth core value, right? Dare to minister by faith. Did the Apostle Paul dare to minister by faith? You bet. You bet. For example, back to Acts again, Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 16. Well, Paul has been, uh, he's been run out of town. And he's now in Athens. Athens is the center of human philosophy and intellectual prowess of the ancient world. Maybe, uh, I'm trying to think of an equivalent, maybe Oxford might be a, a possibility, or, or maybe MIT, Harvard kind of concept. Sorry, my East Coast roots are showing. There must be some West Coast school that would rise to that level. I just don't know what it is. <laughs> Sorry for the slight. You can correct me later. But Athens was where it was at. This is where the, the pinnacle of human wisdom and reasoning would be found in Athens. And so Paul is called upon to preach. He's going to dare here by faith to preach a message to these intelligentsia, a message of Christ. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. By the way, if he's preaching the resurrection, that means that he's preaching the crucifixion because the crucifixion comes before the resurrection. And so he is preaching these things, and they looked at him, and they And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, the very pinnacle of it all, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. And we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens... I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the object of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And he begins to proclaim to them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, getting down to verse 30, saying, Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. That is a daring to minister by faith. Daring to minister by faith. And what did this daring ministry cost the Apostle Paul? What was the price that he had to pay to minister by faith and to dare to minister by faith? Well, 
According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, it was a momentary light affliction. Those are his words, not mine. The price tag for his daring ministry was momentary light affliction. We were daring to minister by faith this past week by setting our whole gymnasium complex into a dormitory to receive evacuees. What was the price we paid? Teeny-weeny light affliction. Okay? I mean, just to be refreshed, go to 2 Corinthians 11 and remember what Paul calls momentary light affliction. Now we're jumping into a context here. He's, he's having this discussion with the Corinthian believers and they've got these false apostles that are trying to draw them away and, and say how important they are. And so they're giving their pedigree. And so the Apostle Paul says, okay, bear with me a little foolishness. I'll give you my pedigree. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm nuts. I more so, in far more labors. Now, this, by the way, is the def- this is his description of his momentary light affliction. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Momentary light affliction. Momentary light affliction. When compared to the eternal weight of glory, he says. What is the price tag for daring to minister by faith? According to the apostle, it's momentary light affliction. Now, I know most of us, you know, I know most of you here, and and I also know that, that you can't say you've been through these things, nor can I. You can take a look at me and know I haven't missed many meals. So if that's momentary light affliction, what are the sacrifices I've been called on to make? How do you classify those? They're nothing. They're nothing. Daring to minister by faith? It has a price tag. But the cost is so small. When measured against the eternal weight of glory. Our problem is we measure it on the here and now, right? I can't help out in the shelter. You kidding me? I gotta stay up from midnight till 6 a.m.? I'll probably get wrinkles under my eyes. And beloved, if we're gonna go after this, if we're gonna dare to minister by faith, we need to have an eschatological perspective. And that is that we are citizens not of this world, but of the world to come. And compared to what is there in glory in Christ Jesus, whatever we're called upon to do here and now is at best 
momentary light affliction. Paul was a daring man. He was a bold man. He planted way more churches than he could possibly care for himself. That's daring. Speaking as a pastor, that's daring. To get involved in more ministry than you can possibly cover yourself is a, is a daring endeavor. Because it necessitates the fifth core value. And that is that you must develop disciples to carry on. To extend the ministry to be where you cannot be. It's far more easy to keep it all where you can touch it. The idea that you're going to, that you're going to pour your life into somebody else who, who might screw it up. Or that you're going to pour yourself into somebody else and you're going to suffer the criticism that may come to you because you're not dealing with the here and now, you're investing in the future. To, the, to, to, to run the risk of suffering the heartache involved of pouring your life into somebody and then find out they turn out to be a bust. They're like Demas. When the growing get, going gets tough, they get going. But the Apostle Paul embraced our fifth value, developing disciples, right? Not only was he actively, personally involved, he was extending himself by disciple-making. He was willing to pay the price to invest in others so that they could be where he could not be, they could do what he could not do, that the church of Jesus Christ could march outward and reach to the end of the world. So he poured himself into people. And he poured himself into a man named Timothy. Go with me to Acts 15. Again, just be reminded... Acts 15, verse 36. It's the beginning of the second missionary journey. Acts 15, 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Remember we pointed out last time, the work was church planting. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And he came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew his father was a Greek. So Paul took this young man with him and began to pour his life into him. Was he successful? Did Timothy pay off? Well, let's let the Apostle Paul himself answer that question in, in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, beginning verse 19. 
This is what's one of the prison epistles. Paul is in prison here and he's writing to some churches. He says, verse 19, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Paul developed a disciple, and a good one. And through this disciple, his ministry was extended exponentially beyond that which he could have ever done. And you remember from last week, 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul's counsel to this disciple, Timothy, was to do what? Get other faithful men, Timothy, and the things that I've taught you, you teach them also, so that they may teach others, and let's keep this thing going. Paul was committed the disciple-making. In spite of everything else he had to do, he was committed to disciple-making. In fact, I would say that disciple-making was at the very core of what the Apostle Paul was about. These are our core values. Devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Determined to obey the Bible. Devoted to prayer. Daring to minister by faith. Developing disciples to reach the nations. These are our core values. These were Paul's core values because they are God's core values. They are God's core values. You know, the exciting thing for me, beloved, is we're beginning down this path together. We're sort of codifying these things and and there's there's an excitement building in the air and and God, He's not even waiting until we get it all written down on paper. He just said, okay, you believe this? Are you on board with me? Let's see. Here comes a ministry opportunity. You want to, want to help plant a church in Idaho? Bingo. Here it is. How much faith do you have? You want, to, you, want to, uh, you want to dare to minister by faith? Okay. How about if you just uh, overnight convert your gymnasium complex into a, into a dormitory facility to receive evacuees that you've never met in your life and people that probably won't be all that overjoyed to be there? I don't know what the next thing providentially he's going to do. But if we're going to say, God, this is who we are. This is what we want to do. He's going to say, okay, here it comes. We're not going to have to go looking, beloved. It's going to come looking for us. And that's the beauty of it. That is the beauty of it. God is just going to open up and pour it in. All we have to do is be faithful. All we have to do is be faithful. I, for one, am looking forward to the trip. How about you? Let's pray. Father God, our prayer is simple, and it is to please increase our faith. When we're all here together on a Sunday morning in a comfortable room, we talk pretty boldly. We encourage one another and get ourselves all fired up, Father. And we're ready to walk out of here and, and, and really begin to, to minister. And then the hard, cold reality of it all comes crashing in. And so, Father, we pray you'd increase our faith.
Because, Lord God, we know that it is, this is nothing that can be done in the flesh, and indeed any attempts to do so are, will not be blessed by you and, in fact, uh, would fall under your judgment. Lord God, we need you. So, Father, help us to humble our hearts. Help us to come to you in faith. Help us depend upon you every moment of our lives. And let us not seek, as was spoken earlier today, let us not seek to siphon off your glory for ourselves. But let us rightly attribute all that is good, all that is virtuous, all that is wonderful that is done through this body where it rightly belongs at the foot of the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.